Chapter Twenty Six of the Financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Things had changed greatly since Cowperwood had talked with Butler, although most friendly at the time the proposition was made that he should combine with Mullenhauer and Simpson to sustain the market. Alas, now on this Monday morning at nine o'clock, an additional complication had been added to the already tangled situation. Which had changed Butler's attitude completely. As he was leaving his home to enter his runabout at nine o'clock in the morning of the same day, in which Cowperwood was seeking Stenner's aid, the postman coming up had handed Butler four letters, all of which he paused for a moment to glance at. One was from a subcontractor by the name of O'Higgins. The second was from Father Michael, his confessor at Saint Timothy's. Thanking him for a contribution to the parish poor fund, a third was from Drexel and Company, relating to a deposit, and the fourth was an anonymous communication on cheap stationery from someone who was apparently not very literate, a woman most likely, written in a scrawling hand, which read, "Dear sir, this is to warn you that your daughter Eileen is running around with a man that she shouldn't." Frank A. Cowperwood, the banker. If you don't believe it, watch the house at nine thirty-one North Tenth Street. Then you can see for yourself. There was neither signature nor mark of any kind to indicate from whence it might have come. Butler got the impression strongly that it might have been written by someone living in the vicinity of the number indicated. His intuition were keen at times. As a matter of fact. It was written by a girl, a member of Saint Timothy's Church, who did live in the vicinity of the house indicated, and who knew Eileen by sight, and was jealous of her heirs and her position. She was a thin, anemic, dissatisfied creature who had the type of brain which can reconcile the gratification of personal spite with a comforting sense of having fulfilled a moral duty. Her home was some five doors north. Of the unregistered Cowperwood domicile on the opposite side of the street, and by degrees in the course of time, she made out or imagined that she had the significance of this institution, piercing fact to fancy, and fusing all with that keen intuition which is so closely related to fact. The result was eventually this letter, which now spread clear and grim before Butler's eyes. The Irish are a philosophic, as well as a practical race. Their first and strongest impulse is to make the best of a bad situation, to put a better face on evil than it normally wears. On first reading these lines, the intelligence they conveyed sent a peculiar chill over Butler's sturdy frame. His jaw instinctively closed, and his grey eyes narrowed. Could this be true? If it were not. Would the author of the letter say so practically? If you don't believe it, watch the house at nine thirty-one North Tenth Street. Wasn't that in itself proof positive? The hard, matter-of-fact realism of it. And this was the man who had come to him the night before seeking aid, and whom he had done so much to assist. There forced itself into his naturally slow-moving but rather accurate mind. A sense of the distinction and charm of his daughter, a considerably sharper picture 
than he had ever had before, and at the same time a keener understanding of the personality of Frank Algernon Cowperwood. How was it he had failed to detect the real subtlety of this man? How was it he had never seen any sign of it, if there had been anything between Cowperwood and Eileen? Parents are frequently inclined, because of a time-flattered sense of security, to take their children for granted. Nothing ever has happened, so nothing ever will happen. They see their children every day, and through the eyes of affection, and despite their natural charm and their own strong paternal love, the children are apt to become not only commonplaces, but ineffably secure against evil. Mary is naturally a good girl, a little wild, but what harm can befall her? John is a straightforward, steady-going boy. How could he get into trouble? The astonishment of most parents at the sudden accidental revelation of evil in connection with any of their children is almost invariably pathetic. My John, my Mary, impossible. But it is possible, very possible, decidedly likely. Some, through lack of experience or understanding, or both, grow hard and bitter on the instant. They feel themselves astonishingly abased in the face of notable tenderness and sacrifice. Others collapse before the grave manifestation of the insecurity and uncertainty of life, the mystic chemistry of our being. Still others, taught roughly by life, or endowed with understanding or intuition, or both, see in this latest manifestation of that incomprehensible chemistry which we call life and personality, and knowing that it is quite vain to hope to gainsay it, save by greater subtlety, put the best face they can upon the matter and call a truce until they can think. We all know that life is unsolvable. We who think, the remainder, imagine a vain thing, and are full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So Edward Butler, being a man of much wit and hard, grim experience, stood there on his doorstep, holding in his big rough hand his thin slip of cheap paper, which contained such a terrific indictment of his daughter. There came to him now a picture of her as she was when she was a very little girl. She was his first baby girl, and how keenly he had felt about her all these years. She had been a beautiful child. Her red gold hair had been pillowed on his breast many a time, and his hard rough fingers had stroked her soft cheeks, low these thousands of times. Eileen, his lovely, dashing daughter of twenty-three, he was lost in dark, strange, unhappy speculation, without any present ability to think or say or do the right thing. He did not know what the right thing was, he finally confessed to himself. Eileen, Eileen, his Eileen, if her mother knew it would break her heart, she mustn't, she mustn't, and yet mustn't she? The heart of a father. The world wanders in many strange bypaths of affection. The love of a mother for her children is dominant, leonine, selfish, and unselfish. It is concentric. The love of a husband for his wife, or of a lover for his sweetheart, is a sweet bond of agreement and exchange trade in a lovely contest. The love of a father for his son or daughter, where it is love at all, is a broad, generous, sad, contemplative giving, without the thought of return. 
a hail and farewell to a troubled traveler whom he would do much to guard, a balanced judgment of weakness and strength, with pity for failure and pride in achievement. It is a lovely, generous, philosophic blossom, which rarely asks too much, seeks only to give wisely and plentifully. That my boy may succeed, that my daughter may be happy, who has not heard and dwelt upon these twin fervors of fatherly wisdom and tenderness. As Butler drove downtown, his huge, slow-moving, in some respects chaotic mind, turned over as rapidly as he could all of the possibilities in connection with this unexpected, sad, and disturbing revelation. Why had Cowperwood not been satisfied with his wife? Why should he enter into his, Butler's, home of all places to establish a clandestine relationship of this character? Was Eileen in any way to blame? She was not without mental resources of her own. She must have known what she was doing. She was a good Catholic, or at least had been raised so. All these years she had been going regularly to confession and communion. True of late, Butler had noticed that she did not care so much about going to church, would sometimes make excuses and stay at home on Sundays. But she had gone as a rule. And now, now, his thoughts would come to the end of a blind alley, and he would start back, as it were, mentally, to the center of things, and begin all over again. He went up the stairs to his office slowly. He went in and sat down, and thought and thought. Ten o'clock came at eleven. His son bothered him with an occasional matter of interest, but finding him moody, finally abandoned him to his own speculations. It was twelve and then one, and he was still sitting there thinking, when the presence of Cowperwood was announced. Cowperwood, on finding Butler not at home, and not encountering Eileen, had hurried up to the office of the Edward Butler Contracting Company, which was also the center of some of Butler's street railway interests. The floor space controlled by the company was divided into the usual official compartments, with sections for the bookkeeper, the road managers, the treasurer, and so on. Owen Butler and his father had small but attractively furnished offices in the rear, where they transacted all the important business of the company. During this drive, curiously, by reason of one of those strange psychologic intuitions which so often precede a human difficulty of one sort or another, he had been thinking of Eileen. He was thinking of the peculiarity of his relationship with her, and of the fact that now he was running to her father for assistance. As he mounted the stairs, he had a peculiar sense of the untoward, but he could not, in his view of life, give it countenance. One glance at Butler showed him that something had gone amiss. He was not so friendly, his glance was dark, and there was a certain sternness to his countenance which had never previously been manifested there in Cowperwood's memory. He perceived at once that there was something different from a mere intention to refuse him aid and call his loan. What was it? Eileen? It must be that. Somebody had suggested something. They had been seen together. Well, even so, nothing could be proved. Butler would obtain no sign from him. But his loan, that was to be called, surely. 
and as for an additional loan, he could see now, before a word had been said, that the thought was useless. "'I came to see you about that loan of yours, Mr. Butler,' he observed briskly, with an old-time jaunty air. You could not have told from his manner or his face that he had observed anything out of the ordinary. Butler, who was alone in the room, Owen having gone into an adjoining room, merely stared at him from under his shaggy brows. "'I'll have to have that money,' he said, brusquely, darkly. An old-time Irish rage suddenly welled up in his bosom as he contemplated this jaunty, sophisticated undoer of his daughter's virtue. He fairly glared at him as he thought of him and her. "'I judge from the way things were going this morning that you might want it,' Cowperwood replied, quietly, without a sign of tremor. "'The bottom's out, I see.' "'The bottom's out, and it'll not be put back soon, I'm thinking. I'll have to have what's belonging to me today. I haven't any time to spare.' "'Very well,' replied Cowperwood, who saw clearly how treacherous the situation was. The old man was in a dour mood. His presence was an irritation to him, for some reason, a deadly provocation. Cowperwood felt clearly that it must be Eileen, that he must know or suspect something. He must pretend business hurry and end this. I'm sorry. I thought I might get an extension, but that's all right. I can get the money, though. I'll send it right over. He turned and walked quickly to the door. Butler got up. He had thought to manage this differently. He had thought to denounce or even assault this man. He was about to make some insinuating remark which would compel an answer, some direct charge, but Cowperwood was out and away as jaunty as ever. The old man was flustered, enraged, disappointed. He opened the small office door which led into the adjoining room and called, Owen. Yes, father? Send over to Cowperwood's office and get that money. You decided to call it, huh? I have. Owen was puzzled by the old man's angry mood. He wondered what it all meant, but thought he and Cowperwood might have had a few words. He went out to his desk to write a note and call a clerk. Butler went to the window and stared out. He was angry, bitter, brutal in his vein. The dirty dog, he suddenly exclaimed to himself in a low voice, I'll take every dollar he's got before I'm through with him. I'll send him to jail, I will. I'll break him, I will. Wait. He clenched his big fists and his teeth. I'll fix him. I'll show him the dog, the damned scoundrel. Never in his life before had he been so bitter, so cruel, so relentless in his mood. He walked his office floor thinking what he could do. Question Eileen. That was what he would do. If her face or her lips told him that his suspicion was true, he would deal with Cowperwood later. This city treasurer business now, it was not a crime in so far as Cowperwood was concerned, but it might be made to be. So now, telling the clerk to say to Owen that he had gone down the street for a few moments, he boarded a streetcar and rode out to his home, where he found his eldest daughter just getting ready to go out. She wore a purple velvet street dress, edged with narrow, flat gilt braid and a striking gold and purple turban. 
She had on dainty new boots of bronze kid and long gloves of lavender suede. In her ears was one of the latest affections, a pair of long jet earrings. The old Irishman realized on this occasion when he saw her, perhaps more clearly than he ever had in his life, that he had grown a bird of rare plumage. "'Where are you going, daughter?' he asked, with a rather unsuccessful attempt to conceal his fear, distress, and smoldering anger. "'To the library,' she said easily, and yet with a sudden realization that all was not right with her father. His face was too heavy and gray. He looked tired and gloomy. "'Come up to my office a minute,' he said. "'I want to see you before you go.' Eileen heard this with a strange feeling of curiosity and wonder. It was not customary for her father to want to see her in his office just when she was going out, and his manner indicated, in this instance, that the exceptional procedure portended a strange revelation of some kind. Eileen, like every other person who offends against a rigid convention of the time, was conscious of and sensitive to the possible disastrous results which would follow exposure. She had often thought about what her family would think if they knew what she was doing. She had never been able to satisfy herself in her mind as to what they would do. Her father was a very vigorous man, but she had never known him to be cruel or cold in his attitude toward her or any other member of the family, and especially not toward her. Always he seemed too fond of her to be completely alienated by anything that might happen. Yet she could not be sure. Butler led the way, planting his big feet solemnly on the steps as he went up. Eileen followed with a single glance at herself in the tall pier mirror which stood in the hall, realizing at once how charming she looked and how uncertain she was feeling about what was to follow. What could her father want? It made the color leave her cheeks for a moment as she thought what he might want. Butler strolled into his stuffy room and sat down in the big leather chair, disproportioned to everything else in the chamber, but which, nevertheless, accompanied his desk. Before him, against the light, was the visitor's chair, in which he liked to have those sit whose faces he was anxious to study. When Eileen entered, he motioned her to it, which was also ominous to her, and said, "'Sit down there.' She took the seat not knowing what to make of his procedure. On the instant her promise to Cowperwood to deny everything, whatever happened, came back to her. If her father was about to attack her on that score, he would get no satisfaction, she thought. She owed it to Frank. Her pretty face strengthened and hardened on the instant. Her small white teeth set themselves in two even rows, and her father saw quite plainly that she was consciously bracing herself for an attack of some kind. He feared by this that she was guilty, and he was all the more distressed, ashamed, outraged, made wholly unhappy. He fumbled in the left-hand pocket of his coat and drew forth from among the various papers the fatal communication so cheap in its physical texture. His big fingers fumbled almost tremulously as he fished the letter sheet out of the small envelope and unfolded it without saying a word. Eileen watched his face and his hands 
wondering what it could be that he had there. He handed the paper over, small in his big fist, and said, Read that. Eileen took it, and for a second was relieved to be able to lower her eyes to the paper. Her relief vanished in a second when she realized how in a moment she would have to raise them again and look him in the face. Dear sir, this is to warn you that your daughter Eileen is running around with a man that she shouldn't, Frank A. Cowperwood, the banker. If you don't believe it, watch the house at 931 North 10th Street. Then you can see for yourself. In spite of herself, the color fled from her cheeks instantly, only to come back in a hot, defiant wave. Why, what a lie, she said, lifting her eyes to her father's. To think that anyone should write such a thing of me. How dare they? I think it's a shame. Old Butler looked at her narrowly, solemnly. He was not deceived to any extent by her bravado. If she were really innocent, he knew she would have jumped to her feet in her defiant way. Protest would have been written all over her. As it was, she only stared haughtily. He read through her eager defiance to the guilty truth. "'How do you know, daughter, that I haven't had the house watched?' he said quizzically. "'How do you know that you haven't been seen going in there?' Only Eileen's solemn promise to her lover could have saved her from this subtle thrust. As it was, she paled nervously, but she saw Frank Cowperwood, solemn and distinguished, asking her what she would say if she were caught. "'It's a lie,' she said, catching her breath. "'I wasn't at any house at that number, and no one saw me going in there. How can you ask me that, father?' In spite of his mixed feelings of uncertainty and yet unshakable belief that his daughter was guilty, he could not help admiring her courage. She was so defiant as she sat there, so set in her determination to lie and thus defend herself. Her beauty helped her in his mood, raised her in his esteem. After all, what could you do with a woman of this kind? She was not a ten-year-old girl any more, as in a way he sometimes continued to fancy her. "'You oughtn't to say that, if it isn't true, Eileen,' he said. "'You oughtn't to lie. It's against your faith. Why would anybody write a letter like that if it wasn't so?' "'But it's not so,' insisted Eileen, pretending anger and outraged feeling. "'And I don't think you have any right to sit there and say that to me. I haven't been there, and I'm not running around with Mr. Cowperwood. Why, I hardly know the man, except in a social way.' Butler shook his head solemnly. "'It's a great blow to me, daughter. It's a great blow to me,' he said. "'I'm willing to take your word, if you say so, but I can't help thinking what a sad thing it would be if you were lying to me. I haven't had the house watched. I only got this this morning, and what's written here may not be so. I hope it isn't, but we'll not say any more about that now. If there's anything in it, and you haven't gone too far to save yourself,' I want you to think of your mother and your sister and your brothers and be a good girl. Think of the church you was raised in and the name we've got to stand up for in the world. Why, if you were doing anything wrong and the people of Philadelphia got a hold of it, the city, big as it is, wouldn't be big enough to hold us. Your brothers have got a reputation to make, their work to do here. You and your sister want to get married sometime. 
How could you expect to look the world in the face and do anything at all if you are doing what this letter says you are, and it was told about you? The old man's voice was thick with a strange, sad, alien emotion. He did not want to believe that his daughter was guilty, even though he knew she was. He did not want to face what he considered, in his vigorous religious way, to be his duty, that of reproaching her sternly. There were some fathers who would have turned her out, he fancied. There were others who might possibly kill Cowperwood after a subtle investigation. That course was not for him. If vengeance he was to have, it must be through politics and finance. He must drive him out. But as for doing anything desperate in connection with Eileen, he could not think of it. Oh, father, returned Eileen, with considerable hysteronic ability in her assumption of pettishness. How can you talk like this when you know I'm not guilty, when I tell you so? The old Irishman saw through her make-believe with profound sadness the feeling that one of his dearest hopes had been shattered. He had expected so much of her socially and matrimonially. Why, any one of a dozen remarkable young men might have married her, and she would have had lovely children to comfort him in his old age. "'Well, we'll not talk any more about it now, daughter,' he said wearily. "'You've been so much to me during all these years that I can scarcely believe anything wrong of you. I don't want to, God knows. You're a grown woman, though, and now, if you are doing anything wrong, I don't suppose I could do so much to stop you. I might turn you out, of course, as many a father would, but I wouldn't like to do anything like that. But if you are doing anything wrong, and he put up his hand to stop a proposed protest on the part of Eileen, remember, I'm certain to find it out in the long run. And Philadelphia won't be big enough to hold me and the man that's done this thing to me. I'll get him, he said, getting up dramatically. I'll get him, and when I do... He turned a livid face to the wall, and Eileen saw clearly that Cowperwood, in addition to any other troubles which might beset him, had her father to deal with. Was this why Frank had looked so sternly at her the night before? Why your mother would die of a broken heart if she thought there was anybody could say the least word against you, pursued Butler in a shaken voice. This man has a family, a wife and children. You oughtn't to want to do anything to hurt them. They'll have trouble enough, if I'm not mistaken, facing what's coming to them in the future. And Butler's jaw hardened just a little. You're a beautiful girl. You're young. You have money. There's dozens of young men be proud to make you their wife. Whatever you may be thinking or doing, don't throw away your life. Don't destroy your immortal soul. Don't break my heart entirely. Eileen, not ungenerous, full of mingled affection and passion, could now have cried. She pitied her father from her heart, but her allegiance was to Cowperwood, her loyalty unshaken. She wanted to say something, to protest much more, but she knew that it was useless. Her father knew that she was lying. "'Well, there's no use of my saying anything more, father,' she said, getting up. The light of day was fading in the windows. The downstairs door closed with a light slam, indicating that one of the boys had come in. Her proposed trip to the library was now without interest to her. "'You won't believe me, anyhow. I tell you, though, that I'm innocent just the same.' 
Butler lifted his big brown hand to command silence. She saw that this shameful relationship, as far as her father was concerned, had been made quite clear, and that this trying conference was now at an end. She turned and walked shamefacedly out. He waited until he heard her steps fading into faint nothings down the hall toward her room. Then he arose. Once more, he clinched his big fists. The scoundrel, he said, the scoundrel. I'll drive him out of Philadelphia if it takes the last dollar I have in the world. End of chapter 26